Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck Nicks? What the fucksters? What the fuck is going on? Okay. You can let your kids listen now. I hope your commute's going well. Your bike ride's going well. If you're swimming and listening, that's interesting. Perhaps you're in the shower, in the bathroom, or cleaning something. I hope it's all going all right. And thank you for listening to my show in your cubicle, trying to look like you're working. Glad to be here. Today on the show, the amazing Annie Baker is here. Pulitzer Prize winning playwright of The Flick which is currently running at the Barrow Street Theater in New York. I saw her other play, John, a big fan of hers. And I believe this marks the first time we've had a playwright on the show. Also, Australia, not excited about flying there. It's going to happen. I'm coming. I'll be, when you're listening to this, I may be suspended in the air, moving fast over water, a lot of water. Not my favorite thing. Don't know, I, look, it's going to be what it's going to be. I'm going to get there. We've made some, uh, We like it looks like Sydney and Melbourne are okay with the ticket sales. Should be about 1,000 or so folks at each one. You can still get tickets. You can go to wtfpod.com slash calendar for tickets. Brisbane, we've accommodated the lack of ticket sales by moving to a smaller venue right within the same structure. So you don't have to do anything too extreme, but uh, it'll be nice. It'll be better. It's going to be okay. It's better than canceling. Looking forward to being there. I'm going to be funny. I'll probably be tired, loopy. I will not have a clear idea of where I am or what my body clock is doing, but uh, maybe something interesting will come out of that. Maybe I'll have an emotional meltdown on stage in Australia. God knows I've done it before, but that was decades ago. It'll be compelling. Might not be the show you expect, but we'll make something of it. Won't we, Australia? I believe we will. I had a therapist back in San Francisco when I lived there in the early 90s, a guy named Jonathan Rosenfeld. And I, I've quoted him here before. Uh, he once said to me that, uh, I, I don't remember exactly what the context was, but I never forgot it. He said, there's no such thing as boredom, only fear. And that thing is sort of, I've kind of like uh, rolled that around in my mental mouth for a long time, you know, kind of sucked on that with my brain for a while. And it's always up there. And, it, and I thought it was very... Um, provocative and uh insightful so somebody had told him that i had said that or i'd quoted him on the show and he reached out to me through uh the direct message function on twitter we were actually able to have dinner the other night he was here in la on business i hadn't seen him in over 20 years really it's probably been that long 
And when I was seeing him as a therapist, he was just this, just uh, you know, working on his PhD. Seemed like a fairly uh, uh, a bit of a dark dude. I felt like we had common things. Uh, we shared a, a disposition, but maybe that was just part of him enabling me uh, the uh, the benefit of transference for the sake of uh, of therapy. So it was kind of weird to see this man who uh, who was my therapist, not that much older than me, so many years later. And he's sort of gone beyond therapy, did a lot of work with family therapy and setting up a new style of family therapy practices over the years. But this is the thing. This is the thing. After we talk for a while, he tells me that meditation changed his life. And I've heard this a few times. And it's not specific. It's not, you know, it doesn't need to have a label in terms of, you know, what brand of meditation, but meditation as a practice changed his brain, changed his life. So I downloaded a meditation app and uh, maybe I'll get to that. I know it's just about breathing and sitting still and turning off your brain. I think I'm capable of that. My intellectual brain doesn't think there's any benefit to it, but why not just try it? I think I've tried it a few times in my life, but I'm really hearing some good shit about this. So... Look forward to that, the possibility of a meditated Mark Marin. How is that even fucking possible? Jesus, man. Look, here we go. Let's talk about this, about the um, the Lauren Michaels interview, looking for a, some sort of a closure or, or acknowledgement, justice, whatever it may be. I realize some of you are, are new to the show, and you, you might not understand why having Lorne Michaels uh, as a guest on my show or me talking to Lorne Michaels is as important as it seems to be. Here's the deal. Almost since the start of this show, I've talked about the SNL audition I had with Lorne. All right. This was like 1994, 95. It played a big role in my psyche and it served as a point of connection for me and a lot of people that I've had on this show. And what I mean by that is I've had a lot of people who have been on SNL or have auditioned for SNL. And I am constantly looking for information about Lorne Michaels. I had this one meeting with him so many years ago and it's defined my entire sense of the man. And I'm looking to put him together as a human being through the stories of others. And I'm always looking for bad things. I'd like to sort of hang a certain amount of evil and sensitivity on the man or, or at worst, a bit of a mind fucking. This has been hanging over me for decades. And the first time I talked about it, it was all the way back in episode 45 of this show of WTF. I told the Lorne Michaels audition story for the first time at the urging of my guest, one of the founding members of the Upright Citizens Brigade, uh, Matt Walsh. And this is a clip of Matt provoking me to tell the story that has become sort of an obsession and a signature and a underlying theme of the duration of this podcast. So this is Matt Walsh and myself on episode 45 of WTF. You have a great Lorne Michaels story. Have you told it on air? I don't know if I've told it here. Do a quick tell, just real quick. That's one of my favorite stories of yours. I'm pimping the host. But. Oh, okay. So what happens is, you know, I, I audition for SNL. They make me jump through a few hoops. He, you know, it's one, Marcy Klein sees me do stand-up, and then she wants to see me again. She brings Lauren to the comic strip. He sits there and watches me do stand-up, and then they take me to the studio. It was Conan's studio, actually, and do a screen test with me. 
and then I have a meeting with Warren. Yeah. And uh, and the thing about the meeting with Warren at that time, I was smoking a lot of pot, and I was reading one of Bruce Wagner's books. You know, and he writes about Hollywood, and I was really sitting there because you sit for hours, and it was just me and Tracy Morgan, who had, who because it was he was meeting Warren that day too, and his hair was so shiny. Like you, know, like he looked, you know, like it, it was like perfect, like gelled or yeah, it yeah. was just like a perfect, you know, black natural fro and just glisten. Now, was this as a writer or performer? Performer, performer, yeah, right? Cool. The idea was that they were gonna, you know, use me on update, you know, because right. Norm was on the fence or yeah. something. But I'm reading this book and I'm high. I'm a little high because oh. I could not not be high for some reason. You know how you do that when you smoke pot? You're like, you know, I smoke pot pretty much every day. Yeah. But I don't want to smoke a lot today because I got this meeting. But if I smoke now, I still got three hours, you know. To come down. Yeah, that yeah. shit. To level off. So I'm a little high. I'm reading Bruce Wagner's I'm Losing You or something. And, and it's all dark and weird and about Hollywood. And, and now I, I can't tell the difference between the book and, and what's happening with me a little bit. And I waited like three hours, and I go in to see Lauren, and he's sitting behind his desk, and Higgins is there, the head writer. And uh, there's a, a picture on his desk, you know, pictures, and then like on my side of his desk is a bowl of candies. And he sits me down, and he goes, literally, like one of the first things, it was when we were doing, I think, Luna, at the beginning of Luna, and there had been press on it in the New York Times. And Lauren says, you know, I don't know what you think you're doing down there below 14th Street, but it really doesn't matter. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, okay, how you doing, you know? And and then all of a sudden, Lauren just, you know, stops talking and starts looking at me right in the eyes. And I'm looking at him, and Higgins is actually like, what the fuck's going on? He goes, you can tell a lot by a person's eyes by looking into oh, them, you know? So it was really fucking weird. You know, and I start talking about the original SNL, like, ah, I was a big fan. He goes, well, there's been plenty of good casts. You know, that was not the best one. I'm like, wow, this is not going well. <laughs> and I keep looking at this candy, you know, and I'm just sitting there and I'm a little high and this is weird as fuck. And then he, and then he, like, he sits back, you know, and he does this sort of pondering thing. He's like, you know, comedians are like monkeys. <laughs> you know, when people go to the zoo, they look like the lion because it's scary and the bear is intense, but the monkey makes people laugh. So I said, you know, as long as they're not throwing shit at you. And he just, like, looks over. You know, he doesn't do anything. And then, like, I I reached for a candy, for Jolly Roger candy. It was Jolly Roger. And I go down, like, I reach the candy, I take it up, I unwrap it. And right when the rapper starts unwrapping, Lauren shoots a look at, at the writer, at Higgins. Like, it had been decided. Like, that candy was somehow connected to my that was the getting... moment and you felt that was real like you kind of because well, I, I believe little, that I was a little high but yeah. like I had somehow failed the test like it was all hinging on the Jolly Roger candy yeah and I left there just completely mind fucked and you know they left me dangling for weeks but I in retrospect from what I understand I was just being used to uh, to to scare Norm oh really yeah but I believe I like to believe that if you didn't take the candy you would be on SNL today that's a better story <laughs> Now, that story has remained very consistent in my mind over the years, with the exception of the fact that I meant to say Jolly Ranchers and not Jolly Rogers. What is Jolly Roger? Jolly Ranchers. That was what I was trying to say. And the, the fact is, I, I, I guess I've always wondered what it would mean if I got some answers about that story. Now, obviously, there's a little paranoia working. Maybe. I don't know. It's been very easy all these years to give Warren Michaels this sort of Buddha slash sorcerer slash mythological power because all I've had to do is think about it. My life could have gone in a completely different direction. 
had it gone the other way. So there, there was a different periods of obsessing about it and wondering about it and reading the mystical implications, the things that transcended coincidence into almost magic. And now the thing is, now that I have these answers, do I want to share them? Because as I said, this, this, is, a, this is an arc, man. In my life, on this show, you know, what happens after that? What happens after I share them? Okay, well, I'll, uh, we'll see what happens, folks. Okay? We'll see what happens. Okay, so now Annie Baker, I'll tell you, man, her plays blew me away. I saw both of them. Uh, I was turned on to her uh, by uh, Scott Rudin, who sent the show an email. And it's my understanding, if I understand Hollywood history, if Scott Rudin sends you an email or perhaps would like you to do something, it might behoove you to look into what he's asking you to do. And I was blown away. He was right. Uh, Annie Baker is a phenomenal talent. And I, I saw both plays that I could, The Flick and John, uh, when I was in New York with Brendan McDonald. Uh, and I, was, uh, I, was, I, I, I loved both of them. And so it was a really exciting thing for me to talk to a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright who is uh, not what I expected. It's interesting because plays can be very cryptic and very abstract. And her plays are, are no different than that, where you, you sort of wonder, like, why decide to do it this way? Or where did that come from? You know, how do you know when something like this is done? So it was very exciting for me to talk to a, a playwright. And it was even more exciting that that playwright was Annie Baker. So this is me talking to Annie Baker in New York. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read the foxed page is for you get it now wherever you get your podcasts city i went to the shows scott rudin reached out to me personally which is scary i don't know what your experience with him <laughs> but for me i don't know him yeah then I got an email from Scott Rudin saying, you know. Yeah, it's sort of titillating and scary to see his right. name in your sure, inbox. Sure, sure. Like, what yeah. I do, is this the end? Yeah. Wait, I there's nothing. He can't hurt me. Yeah. Or maybe it's my big break. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're yeah. like, maybe he's going to cast me in a movie. No, I, I, think, I'm, that, I think that boat <laughs> sailed for me. But, um, but he was in, sort of excited for me and you to talk. And then he sent me uh, a bunch of your plays with a little card. I think it said um, compliments of Scott Rudin, like a card. Oh, yeah, I got, I've gotten one of those. Yeah. That's really exciting. It kind of is. Yeah. But if it weren't for Scott Rudin. I can't Rudin, believe he sent you my plays. 
Yeah, no, I, I need. Wow. Okay. How did he find you? What's your relationship with him? Because, like, because of him, I saw your plays, and I'm aware of you. I, I'm not, you know, I don't live in New York. I'm not a huge theater head, so I wouldn't have known. Right. So, how did you meet Scott Rudin? I'm trying to remember how I'm. I think he is sort of like an all-seeing eye, and I like. I think my second or third play in New York, which was actually like a tiny play with like. Um, 75 seat audience in like Where the West it? Village in like a church. Um, it was at this place called the Rattlestick Playwrights Theater and it ran for like four weeks and like yeah. could barely people fit people into the theater but he like somehow saw you know he saw it because he's Scott Rudin right. and then called me in for a meeting and then I've sort of known him ever since. So you went in for the meeting? Yeah. And was it scary? Were you like intimidated? Were you like whatever? No. I, no I... I'm actually like I I'm not when I'm not being recorded I'm yeah. weirdly not that nervous or intimidated by people. Uh-huh. There is something I'm like more it's like I'm I'm way more scared of like being permanently recorded as as an idiot but like just be like being witnessed as an idiot for one afternoon by Scott Rudin. Right. Wasn't so bad. Yeah. He was like would you ever let me make a movie? A that, movie. That was the first pitch. Of that play. Which he was one? like, would you the ever be in? This was my play, The Aliens. Uh-huh. And I said, no. And then he was like, okay. And we sort of eyed each other. And then we've had a relationship ever since. But I, he's so smart. He's like the smartest. Yeah, he's done some great stuff. He's the smartest producer out and there, I think. What was The Aliens about? The Aliens was about um, kind of the town I grew up in and all the... Um, weird bearded guys who would sort of like hang out near the trash cans where I grew up and and um it's like the townies for lack of a better Where'd word you grow up? Amherst Massachusetts oh yeah so it's like it's like a college town yeah. in western Massachusetts and it's like a lot of there it's like it's a weird mix of people and there are a lot of like guys in sweatpants with guitars the and ones that beards sort of like, who are sort of like pseudo homeless yeah. Um, but collegey somehow. But a There's little a college-y coll- yeah. homeless. Yeah, collegey homeless who like came to this town because it was like a fun place to right. be. Right. Um, and there was. There's like huge. There's like a big heroin problem in Vermont and Western Massachusetts right now, and I was interested in writing about that. Jay Mascus is from there. You guys buddies? Oh no! Right, he's from Northampton. But he like I was. His dad was a dentist. His dad was a dentist in Northampton. But I that was he was just like the cool, awesome story when I was oh, a teenager. Okay. I was so like was maybe over, you right. could become Jay Mascus. Like there's like a few people from that area. So you sort of yeah. you were you were you were not a mainstream person. You were already from the get go. Yeah, I was pr- I was like artier than I am now. I oh, was I'm like sure. I was like all the way. I like you know I was lonely and sad and I didn't have anything to do. Small so town. I was like yeah. So I was like crazy arty and like angry and, and you're I thought by, I was smarter than everybody else because you were surrounded by college kids too. So you could be that person, right? Yeah, a little. And I just like I don't know. You, there's really nothing to do but like get mad. And like drive around with your friends at night. Yeah. And then there's like cool guys who seem really cool because they're in their 30s right. and you're like 17. Yeah. And I started hanging out with them. And yeah. they have drug problems and they write their own music. And So when you were 17, you were hanging out with the guys at the trash can. Yeah. Because they were like, they were the real thing. Yeah. Well, when I was, when I was, I was kind of like a pretty good kid, like yeah. nerdy with glasses yeah. and like, um, and then when I was 16, I like dated a cute, Towny guy and he introduced me to like the whole world of like people who have like drumming circles next to the 
pond in the middle of the night and stuff. The the post hippie. Yeah, and like everyone's shrooming, right. and it's yeah, yeah. and and I I got into that crowd, and it was dreads and smells. Yeah, dreads right. and smells, and and but it's like it was kind of an amazing group of people, and I got really close to them, and then years later you you'd hear that people had died, and it's yeah, it's just a it's a really specific world that I hadn't seen portrayed before. What you have siblings or you don't? I do. I grew up with an older brother. That's was, important. Yeah. How much older? Three and a half years, That's which enough. is like, yeah, which is enough for him to like introduce me to cool music, right. but also hate me. Right. Yeah. Right. So well, so that he, tension like, is necessary. Yeah. He hated me and he thought I was dumb, but I was like a good pupil. Right. So. So in those moments where you actually connected, it was around like him showing you cool stuff. Him showing me cool stuff and cool music. And I remember when we were younger, um, his he and his friends would be playing video games. Mm-hmm. And I was like in love with that. I was like in love with all of his like nerdy, nerdy friends just because they He's were nerdy years. too. Yeah. We were both. Oh, you're like, that's lucky. Super nerdy. But his group of friends said that I could come hang out with them um, if they could use me as a footstool. So I would like I remember as a kid, like just like lying like crouching in a little ball on my on the floor of my brother's bedroom and them like resting their feet on me and I was like this is great. How old were you? I get to hang out with these guys. You know, probably like eight and they it's were eleven. Borderline abusive. Yeah, bo- <laughs> <laughs> I was telling that like it was like a cute story and right. then your face like fell and you looked Why, well if you were you oh, twelve it would have been a problem. Yeah. Eleven and, yeah, and yeah. seven. 11, yeah, eight, yeah. Nine, okay. Yeah. It's cute. Yeah. What'd your what'd your folks do in Amherst? Um my mom growing up was a therapist. Oh, really? Yeah. What kind? Um, well, she worked at a clinic in Northampton for um, mostly um, children who were abuse survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she was also like going back to school while she was doing that job and trying to get her PhD in psychology. And I remember once like the husband, she was like testifying in court for one of the abused kids and like the husband... Uh, showed up in our backyard, like threatening us. Like there was some, she right. was like part of that world. Right. Um, and then, so my brother and I lived with her and then my dad lived in New York City, actually. Here? Yeah. Still? No. He lives in D.C. When they get divorced? Six. You were six? Yeah. Are your parents still together? No. They're still alive, not together. Every episode I've listened to of your show, everyone's parents are divorced. I'm keep. I, it might just be a coincidence which ones I've, I really, I'm like, are we all from divorced parents? Some people's are still alive, but yeah, yeah. Mo- I think most people in general in a certain world, the parents are divorced. Yeah. It seems pretty common. I, what effect it has on these all change. My parents didn't get divorced till I was in my 30s. So huh. it's really, yeah, it's hard for me Do to figure out. Do you feel like they should have gotten divorced earlier? I don't know. You, you know, like I, probably. I, I mean, I, I, there was so much uh, weird, self-involved lying going on. Like I, I didn't know until later, but I, I, I don't know that I really felt that connected to them in general. So when you were 15, if someone was like, are your parents happy together? You would have been like, I don't know. Um, yeah, because I just never really saw them as parents. They were just these people that I grew up with. They had their, they seem to have some problems, and they needed a lot of attention. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, what's your relationship like with your parents? Um, my mom and I are really close. Is I she feel, still doing therapy? Yeah, and she's um she t- started teaching psychology after she got her doctorate up in New Hampshire, and she uh-huh. just she like just retired two months ago. She and I are really close. I, we were like 
too close when I was a kid. Sure. Like now I feel like it's really good. We're like friends. She was leaning on you when you were a kid? Well, I actually just think it's that thing when you're a single parent, yeah. especially after my brother went to college, it, when it, it's just like a 15-year-old girl and a 50-year-old woman like living together and you're both single. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's just really intense. Like yeah. we were just like a couple. Right. And we, I mean, I, um, like, I don't know who I'd be without like staying, sitting at the kitchen table with her, like mm-hmm. really late at night and like talking about everything. Mm-hmm. But so that's like a huge part of my life and I wouldn't ever well, you, take you, that away but i am like that's great like we talked like my friends would hear the kind of conversations i had with my mother and just be like what um but that's good but i mostly good you know you, well, like you occasionally thinking... you don't want to hear about everything and i think as a kid i always asked a lot of questions and i was very curious but i always i was the kind of kid that like asked the question that you sh- you i didn't actually want to know the answer to like like about you like sex and you like you don't you want your mom to talk about sex like to a certain point but she's and then a you like she's and then you like don't she laid it out she right. laid it out big time and but not just the biology of no it, like yeah yeah, yeah. too and much information too much information and, yeah. and looking back you're like huh hmm. huh um she's, but yeah she's cool so it's a boundary she's a cool issue, lady yeah we had, the two of us had some boundary issues like yeah there yeah yeah and yeah. I like hated all our boyfriends and yeah. you know it was like. We yeah. were into, I was like a jealous husband. Uh-huh. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's your dad do? He's well, he's done a lot of different things. This sort of uh, he's an environmentalist. That's sort of what all his jobs have been related to. Yeah. I'm I don't know. I meet people who like whose parents told them yeah. that they were going to be like that they were going to be great artists when they grew up or that they could, you know, the whole like you can do anything, right, right, which right. you know, I'll probably tell my kids. Yeah. But there is a weird entitlement i think to people who think they who knew they were going to do great things or i I don't know i just i never had that i was sure i was like i'm just trying to like avoid being homeless in the gutter and i so that makes me very um happy that i like i'm always very grateful that i get to be an artist because it is it's legitimately a pleasant surprise like i did not think it would happen did you have jobs i had so many jobs and i was just sure that that's what I'd be doing for the rest of my, I was totally resigned to that. And I was really good at finding jobs. I was doing jobs. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to have a series of jobs and I'll try to find a, by the, you know, I'll try to have a job that doesn't make me want to kill myself and I'll have that job and then I'll die. And that was it. That's what I get. That was the dream. That's what I get. That's what Um, you get. Yeah. But really, and that's what most people get, you know? And, um, so I am really lucky, but I had tons of jobs and I was really good. It's weird because I'm, Really lazy and ineffective in um, lots of areas of my life, but I was I've always been really good at finding jobs. So I was like um, working in the bakery after school when I was in high school. I was like the youngest person there by like fifteen years, and then making I, bread and muffins. I just like sold cookies at the oh you didn't counter. get to bake. I didn't get to bake anything. Oh. But were the bakers um, there? The bakers were How there. How great is that to work in a place where they bake? It was great. And then I, if you, if a cookie breaks, you get yeah. to eat it. You're and like, then I yeah. just like be breaking cookies when they weren't <laughs> yeah. looking. Sure. Um, and I was just like babysitting all the time. You know, I just was like always working and mm-hmm. always like saving money. And then I worked throughout college and were you had like a million different school? jobs. Um, I was writing, but I wasn't showing it to anybody because I also I was writing short stories. I wrote a play. But and I like submitted it to some con, you know, some student play contest in the high school. Yeah, like a short play. And then I um, what's the opposite of submitting? I rescinded it. 
like the night before I was like actually never mind and, I, and then I like took it back because it was so bad and uh-huh. you know I was really self-hating and hated everything I wrote and sort of did it in secret why do you think you were self-hating um I don't know I do um I do think it's partly like having an older brother and a father who were like really into like movies and books and like talking about um all that stuff. I do think I do think that I owe and I I don't know. I always felt like anything I produced wasn't as good as I knew something. I didn't I always held myself. It's like I at 15 I still I held myself to the standard I hold myself to now, which is like I want to make something really good. And that, it's so painful when you're 15 and, and you're like, and like I'm a, it. yeah, and I'm a stupid 15 year old, so right. I can't do it. But right. I like knew I never had the thing where I was like, maybe it's really good. I always knew I was like an idiot yeah. high school student, and it's so painful. Right. And so then all the high school students who were like doing stuff and thinking it was good, I like couldn't identify with them. But were I they mean, doing? I still feel that way. Actually, I'm still like, I haven't like this is terrible what I'm doing. Like what's wrong with you idiots that you think this really? is like yeah i'm not i'm not just being self-deprecating i am like but and there's a kind of like actually like do you know you won the pulitzer prize i did but that i had the same feeling where i was like this i could do so much better than this i mean it's actually very egotistical like if you it's i'm act, it's actually kind of like i could be so much better right you should did um, you did you rescind the pulitzer like look yeah this i is like a sent mistake. the play where i'm like i think you guys you guys <laughs> You're it's wrong. really not that good. You're I want wrong. to take the play, but I don't know who submitted this. I that's I would have if I could have. <laughs> really? Seriously, yeah, seriously. Um, but probably for a, there's probably a broader series of pressures and reasons uh, than just being a 15 year old. Yeah, no, clearly it's like still going on for me now. But but now sort of like um, you know the the expectations or 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 the what you would see as expectations once you win something like that which is a pretty big fucking deal. Yeah. You're it's sort of like, oh my God, no. Now what? Yeah. Although I feel like my own expectations for myself have always been so high. Because people have asked me, they've been like, do you feel pressure now that you won this award to like, you know, the next thing you do has to be really good. And I actually feel like the amount of pressure I've exerted on myself is so high my whole life that it's like it actually doesn't, I don't feel it's more not going to change. Now. Yeah, I'm already yeah. like crippled under the weight of the pressure I put on myself. Because it's interesting about self hatred. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. Keep going. Yeah, keep going. No, it it is because you know some people have it, and it's 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 a really hard thing to shake uh, that type of judgment on yourself. And some people don't have it. Um, I've I don't I don't meet a lot of people that you know are necessarily really confident but they don't do the thing where they second guess everything and even when they have success they're like nah it was it's okay you know that thing that yeah. there's no moment of relief or sense of accomplishment that would you know give you the self-esteem even for a minute that was right. sort of like well it's so the self because i don't know like i don't hate if i think about it like i don't hate myself right like i like myself okay like i actually think i'm like a pretty good friend mm-hmm. And like a pretty good girlfriend. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not great. You know, I'm like, okay. But I'm like, I don't beat myself up about it. Right. Well, actually, that's not true. But I don't. It's different. I'm like, I'm I'm like, I would want to be friends with me. Like I'm a nice lady. But 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 then when it comes to like making art, it's like that's a whole 
that's a whole different story. And that is about like, what's the point? It already, it just feels like such a indulgent, um, thing to be able to do. And so many people on this planet, like don't get to do that and don't have the opportunity to express themselves creatively for their job. I mean, it's so crazy that we get to do that. So then I do feel this like enormous pressure and enormous amount of, I don't know if it's self-hatred, but just like, maybe it's self-hatred, but just like, I better fucking make this really amazing. And then when it's not really amazing, I feel like shit. But, um, Maybe I don't know if that's self-hatred. Would you would you do you hate yourself? Um I I do I do it in a very specific way. Like you know generally I think I'm okay with myself, but I do have like weird body issues for a dude and I do um Wait, what what are your weird body issues? I just always feel like I'm like doughy. You're not you don't look doughy. See, now it's gone for a second. <laughs> See what you did? <laughs> Thank you. This interview's been great for me. <laughs> But Wait, no, but but have my, you always felt that way though? You've like since you were no, a kid, my, you were like, "I'm doughy." Uh, so like it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was her way that she bonded with me. Her lack of boundaries was concerned for me being fat. Oh, uh, and were you ever fat? Chubby, but like every kid's chubby, right? Yeah, yeah, she fucked me up for good. Yeah, but it's deep. Yeah, yeah. But like in terms of professionally, I never think I, I put the right amount of time into my bits. I don't think. Uh, that my comedy is as strong as it could be. I'll compare myself to other people, you yeah. know, like my friends uh, who are, you know, either more successful or who I think are more um, more funny or more, you know, have a structure. Like th- my process is my process. Anyone's process is whatever. Right. But I, I always think like if I just, if, if I was a little more disciplined and I didn't write like that, yeah, then I'd be much better. But does yeah. it stop me? No. Yeah. So. I definitely feel like I don't work hard enough. Right. We perpetuate it. It's our way of motivating. Yeah. But when your parents got divorced, did, was that, did you, are you friends with your dad? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really, he didn't, I grew up with my mom more. Right. Um, but yeah, we're friendly. It's cool. But you didn't feel like, you know, it was your fault and all that shit. It wasn't my fault. No. You know, I was young enough that I don't remember. I definitely was like depressed and sad about it mm-hmm. I think but I think worse than actually your parents getting divorced mm-hmm. for me I shouldn't speak for other people for me worse than the divorce itself because my parents like shouldn't have been together it was like very clear it, it was one of those divorces where afterwards you were like I have no idea why those two people my whole life's been a lie ev- would have yeah. ever gotten together they're right. so different right. like even just the two of them talking in the room at like right. a high school graduation yeah. seems surreal um, but I think harder for me was like um, the whole like parents dating other people thing and like people coming in and out of my lives and like my parents marrying people and then they were just like single people in the 80s. Right. So a know? lot of people and, coming through. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of people coming through on both sides and that was the hard part. That's the thing where I look back and I'm like, oh, that sucked. Like having to meet people and um, get to know them and like being asked to consider them your family and then them like disappearing when your parent breaks up with them. Like that whole thing fucked with my head. And I think if I ever have kids, that's the thing I would really want to try not to do if I ever like got divorced would be like the whole, mm-hmm. the whole like bringing, introducing your kid to people you're dating madness thing, but it's hard to avoid too. It's interesting. And I'm sure you've made the connection that, you know, trying to figure out 
what a relationship is and whether they're possible and, and, and whether you can have one that'll stay and is some theme you work with. In my work. Yeah. 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 Uh, is it? Yeah, I guess. You know, the, the play you saw last night, John, was like the first play where I'd ever really tried to like tackle a romantic relationship. I think I've always really avoided that. Um, and that was my first play where I was like, oh, I'm a, I want to write about like the mind fuck of being in a relationship like in its last stage. But last stage of three years. Last stage of three. Yeah. But like that thing, where like you a like, young relationship yeah. of young people, young people when you shouldn't be together, yeah, but, but you're like working really hard yeah. and you don't know yourself well enough to know that you should just leave. Right. And, and that whole thing. And then you beat your, you think there's something wrong with you and that whole cycle. I was interested in writing about that, but I, that, that's like another thing. I really hesitated writing about it because I do think like so many plays and movies about relationships, mm -hmm. there is a point where I'm like, why do I care? It's just like, like. But also, there it has a, to feel a little universal and not just about like right, two but, people in love and breaking up. But, well, I didn't. I didn't feel that that was the primary story. But the idea of 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 what is permanent and what is um, you know unconditional and what is you know bigger than us, yeah, and what stays throughout. Well, that's a, the hardest thing for me about becoming an adult was this whole idea. Like, I think I would have fared. That's not true. I'm going to say something that's not true, but I think I would have fared better in like a one of those societies where you like married your first girlfriend or boyfriend and uh -huh. then you're just like stuck with them and you're not allowed to get divorced. Uh -huh. I don't actually wish that's what had happened, but but I the, the whole thing where like you could fall in love with people and even live with them and like have Thanksgiving with them and then break up, which is kind of what being in your 20s is about uh -huh. now, uh -huh. killed me. Like I couldn't believe that because I'd grown up with that and I didn't want to do Painful. that. Yeah. And, and just ludicrous to me, like like bringing someone in that close to you and, and like trying to make someone family and then it failing and then you never see each other again. And I would try to be friends with all my ex-boyfriends because I was like, how can we not be in each other's lives anymore? You know, I was like... It was very, very hard for me to accept the idea that like people leave your life sometimes. It's horrible. And that you can initiate, like that I would initiate that, that I'd be the person who would end something also killed me. Like I couldn't, like I could, that was, um, I'd feel like that was like my most self-hating moment was like in my mid twenties when I was like, I'm hurting people and ending things and, mm. and um, that really killed me. And I do feel like that's related to like, being a coming child of divorce, yeah. People coming I just didn't want going. to do that myself, and then of course I did. And it must. How can you not? No, it's it's impossible not to. Yeah. And and still honor your feelings if you just unless you just luck out. But I think it's interesting that the idea of it's not the society you talk about where you're supposed to be with the person that you you, you I mean that it, the idea of marriage is sort of that. Yeah. But there was no reason that you would ever believe in it, given what you grew up with. Yeah. It, it didn't seem. Rational. Yeah, I wanted it very badly though. Like I loved the idea of like meeting someone in eight at eighteen and being with them for the rest of your life. I was like, that sounds great. That sounds so stable. But you'd have to turn a lot of your brain off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and and suck up a lot of things where you know in the culture we live in, as as you know, um, ideas about individuality and psychology evolve. You know, we've grown to try to service ourselves 
more than than others in relationship and, and protect that. I I don't know. You know, those there's no. No, that's the hardest thing. It is the hardest thing, and yeah. and and it's all about compromise. You know, having like I'm older than you, and I've you know been through a couple marriages and some painful shit, but and I don't I don't like it, and it's really kind of awful. It's I like, but I'm just realizing now as you talk about it that if I look at the two plays I saw, this this idea of of grieving, you know absence of somebody for whatever reason and the loneliness of longing and then also the sort of the weird painful loneliness of of losing or deciding to to not be with somebody you you loved is like that's a human thing it's everybody has that they're just walking around with at some state of heartbreak yeah managing heartbreak yeah and i never wanted to betray anybody that was always my thing like as a teenager and someone in my early 20s i was always like i don't i'm I'm never gonna betray anybody but like of course we just go through life betraying everybody all the time and ourselves and it's just a matter of like managing it and talking about it and like rationalizing rationalizing it it and trying to minimize it Mm -hmm. but i just never wanted to make anyone feel bad or betrayed ever yeah. And then I, of course, I, I, the sad thing too is when you also like have that goal, then you right. end up betraying people left and like, then you're just like not in touch with your desires and then you screw lots of people over. Right. Well, that's the and trap. That, and that's then, a, and then, yeah. And then you're hard on yourself. Yeah. And then yeah. you get to honor that. Like, I'm not good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I figured it all out. Yeah. So when did you decide to, um, pursue, theater for real i mean what why did you go to college like you were working and doing your jobs and breaking cookies right and you know you didn't have a big plan for yourself did your parents say like you should go to college or were you sure oh i totally wanted to go to college like i loved reading and i loved art and i wanted to get out of my small town and i wanted to move to new york city um so i i was super excited about going to college but you wanted to move to new york city because of college or just because there was something here that you had decided you wanted there was something here that i decided i wanted what was that based on i don't my dad living here like i visited him here Mm -hmm. i liked it i liked going to like see movies at film forum i wanted to like work in the theater somehow so So right when i moved here yeah Yeah. right when i moved here while i was my freshman year of college i was like a stage manager at la mama which is actually like two blocks away from here um and i just immediately started so um, you knew theater was it I was super into theater, and I was like, I want to be involved in this somehow. And were you act? You were acting in college, in high school. In high school, I was acting, but I never wanted to be an actor because I'm a bad actor. What were you doing? What kind of acting? What plays? Like, well, I was the star of my high school musical, my senior year of high school, Guys and Dolls. You did Guys and Dolls. I in did high Guys school. and Dolls, okay. and I was Adelaide, mm-hmm. and that was still the high point of my life. To this day. To this day. <laughs> Was because I got to like wear tiny sparkly hot pants mm-hmm. and like fishnet stockings. Mm-hmm. I remember like the woman who was supposed to choreograph my dances like got sick or something, like the gym teacher or whatever. Yeah. And so I like choreographed all my own dances and like got to wear a blonde wig and it's the bigger than the Pulitzer. Bigger than the yeah, no question. I was happier then. Really. Well, that that one experience was right. really, really great. It's great. It was totally great. The and first... I remember when it was happening, I was like, "It's ne- I'm never going to get to like star in a musical and like wear tiny, sparkly hot pants ever again." again. This, this is, is it? it, and it was. Oh, yeah. There, you know, there's still there's still time, Annie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. 
Well, I'm it, I'm saying it on your podcast in case someone's doing a production of Guys and Dolls somewhere and wants yeah. to cast me. I'm they, available. I'm, I'd, I'd, I'd watch the email box. <laughs> okay. You're going to get some weird... Were you serious about the guys and dolls? And I'll say yes. <laughs> but I can't do it for scheduling reasons. I'll clear my schedule. I'm, oh, I'm, no, no, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you come here and you, you went to where? I went to NYU. Yeah. And I studied I studied a lot of stuff. I studied playwriting, though. I studied undergrad. Undergrad. I studied religion. What school? You're in Tisch School? Tisch, yeah. yeah. I studied playwriting at Tisch. But you're working at La Mama as a stage hand, is that? Stage manager. Just That was so, like one of my many jobs. I also, all my jobs were very close to here, actually. Um, I was a, worked at St. Mark's Bookshop. Oh, yeah. When else? It's gone. I know. But the La Mama thing, I mean, what was your experience in taking theater in up to the point of you coming here? It, there wasn't a lot, which is one of the, it's still like very mysterious to me how I ended up being interested in theater and doing theater. And then the fact that I'm a play right now, I don't totally understand it. I mean, there's like high school theater and I had a great high school drama teacher yeah. who showed me lots of good plays. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't know why I liked it so much and I don't know why I was so drawn to it. Um, I don't, I still don't totally understand it. To go really? back to the beginning of our conversation, yeah, I it's um it's always just been like a mysterious thing, and I've always been very drawn to it. And there wasn't like a moment when I was like, I love theater, I want to work in theater. No, and look, so much about theater drives me insane. Like it's sometimes it's kind of a nightmare. Um, and I I feel like when you do theater, you're not really part of the larger cultural conversation. Yeah, like it's like it's like a weird business. It's, um. And and so I still like like I woke up this morning and I was like why do I do the like I just was like I like got the up? email that the computers went out last night and there were no sound cues for half the show and I was just like why did I do this yeah like what like why did I choose to work in like the most flawed ephemeral out of your control medium well it's not always out of your control I mean that was it's actually more than most contextually very in your control kind of but something always goes wrong like it really it's sort of like you can't it's sort of impossible to have the perfect show because right, um, you have actors you have other there's elements. so many things that can go wrong and even if someone sees a really good show like the next night someone sees the show where there's no doorbell ring and 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 um i mean that's like really beautiful like there's something really beautiful about that it's human yeah, and like you, I'm a huge perfectionist, and you can't ever hit perfection in the theater. Like it's like it's a crazy goal because, and you can find the perfect cast, but someone always drops out like two weeks before rehearsals. And start, also, somebody you know? could you know space out. There could be weird moments where it's yeah, sort of yeah like, people forget their lines when, every show. That's yeah, just where the way gonna, it goes. Are they going to get back on track? <laughs> yeah, it's just what happens. Like people. Well, that's sort of exciting. Yeah, but it does. It's like this crazy emotional roller coaster, and and watching my own plays i am like this is a nightmare and like the greatest adrenaline rush ever like there's something really it's like both at the same time that sounds great yeah i mean kind of it like it it is you're like living when you watch your own play uh -huh. and someone forgets their line but then like remembers it five seconds later like you yeah. are like the highs and lows are sure. very extreme and, yeah it's like reading of, a comment section <laughs> It's just like reading a comment section. Ooh, nice one. Oh, oh man. that's I horrible. did that this morning. I read the comment section oh, for some review in the New York Times. 
But wait, we got to go back here because okay. something must have happened. Let, let's try to identify. That made me in, into theater? Well, no, but like, you know, La Mama is very specific. And I have to assume like a 19-year-old in I, that... I didn't know what it was. There was like a sign on a... No, I know, like but, I mean, but on once you're in it, yeah. it was, it's one of the great sort of bastions of experimental theater. Yeah. And, and is that the right use of the word I bastion? I was really impressed that you okay. said it. And and so I had I think I wouldn't I don't know but it sounds it, like, really yeah, good. I think it, it it could be used there. Yeah, I'll look Bastion. it up later. Yeah, it, but but I have to assume that coming out of what you came from, even you know being relatively hip kid, that something must have happened there. There like because I know I don't go to a lot of theater because I can't bear bad theater and I don't I don't seek it out. I don't seek theater out. Yeah, unless somebody tells me I got to see it. There are plays I've seen in my life that have changed my life. Like what? Well, I think that, like, the thing that really blew me away about theater was just how, like, strangely human it was, but just once removed. Like, th that you would have somebody right yeah. there, you know, talking at this pitch, you know, I mean, see spit, and, and it's its own universe, but, like, I could touch him. Yeah. You know? And that that connection... I saw a, a weird amateur production in Albuquerque, New Mexico of Sam Shepard's Tooth of Crime, I think. Oh, yeah. And it's, that's huh. an, an epic fucking play. Yeah. Uh, sort of about the music business. And, you know, there were people I knew in it because I, I was a kid that, like, I got a job across from the university when I was 15. So I was very entrenched with art and older people and doing art and being an artist and all that stuff. So this guy I used to work with at the restaurant, Judd, he directed and put up this tooth of crime at this like That's kind of amazing. weird theater space. And the dude who played Crow was this painter in town. Like, so it was this, yeah. this vortex of all the local arty people that I kind of knew. And I, I don't know that I could wrap my mind around the play really. Uh, but I was just sort of amazed at the commitment of it all and, and of the spectacle yeah. of it all and of the language of it all. And it's so vulnerable too. Yeah. Oh, like yes. I feel so. like being in a play or putting on a play is like the most humiliating, vulnerable thing to do. And then Musicals, there's such, the yeah, worst. that is, <laughs> but there is something like that's also then really when it works and you're in the audience and these people are being so vulnerable. Right. It's like really you can get like a high off of it. Well, not just a high, but it's like it's it's vulnerability and, and in, a, in a space where it's permitted and allowed to be connected with by an audience or others is sort of an elevation of the human spirit. It's sort of why we're here in some weird way. It's a part of being human that gets very you know, distant from a lot of people. Yeah, and it's an interaction. Like, mm -hmm. even though the actors on stage are pretending you aren't there, like, you know, they know that you're there. Like, you're all, everyone's, like, aware, and it is some kind of weird, just, like, human interaction. And that's, I think, one of the things that keeps bringing me back to it, because I do find that, like, most human interactions kind of suck and and, like, don't have a lot of meaning in them, and there's a lot of depressing small talk and like a play is an opportunity to like be in a room with a lot of people and talk about important things or like things that matter to but people but that's but that's and get really vulnerable with each other right but but that that's a, that's interesting that you say that in be, because of like the the type of conversation that 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 is the flick was was mundane conversation on the surface 
in a way. Yeah, that's true for part of that play. Yeah, yeah. they are just like shooting the shit. Yeah, and that and this whole idea about the requirement of an audience in theater and the, in that relationship, the fact that you created this this set that was unchanging and it was a movie theater where the seats actually reflected the seats of the theater. Yeah. That, you know, that, that sort of demands attention. I don't know, you know, how conscious the playwright is of what that that might mean. That was like the first thing that came to me when I started writing the play. Like that was my idea. That it was going to be set in a movie theater. With the, like the fourth wall being the movie screen and like a face-off right. of like audience seats, like audience, like a full audience facing an empty audience on stage, and like theater versus film, kind of in the physical space. Which sort of provokes the question as an audience member, like you know, I guess the the most innocent one is like, are we the movie? Are yeah, and you know, what are our lives? What is this saying about us? Who yeah. are these people having this small talk on stage? You know, just sort of like co-workers at an old movie theater just trying to feel each other out and and position themselves in this small world yeah yeah what was your intention of it what was my in- i mean i'm so bad at talk about no i don't about and, I, and, I, and i don't think you should have to. um but what i mean i did it was actually just an experience i would have um going to the movies it's like i would go see a really crappy movie right and then it would be over and I'd stay till the end of the credits because I just kind of like that. Mm-hmm. It just kind of we- gets weird and mm-hmm. quiet and awkward mm-hmm. and like the weird flashes of light that happen at the end of the credits and the special thanks. And the um, and then I loved the moment when the lights came on and the ushers came through and started like shit talking each other and sweeping up the popcorn. Mm-hmm. Like that transition from like the magic like time machine of the movies mm-hmm. into the like crazy present tense like fluorescence fluorescent lights on like mm-hmm. some guy in a polo shirts like sweeping up popcorn that to me felt like so profound and i still couldn't really tell you like i couldn't be like well it's profound because right. you know I like know. Yeah. but to me that moment and that transition um like I wanted it to be both a tribute to the movies, like the power of watching a movie and how jarring it is when a movie's over and a tribute to like theater. Cause actually when you're sitting in those audience seats and then the ushers come through, you're kind of just like watching theater. Like right. they're kind of like performing for you a right. little when they sweep, when yeah. they know you're still there. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so that whole thing was like soup felt like super potent to me. And this sort of, these characters, which are familiar to, to any of us in a way, either because we've had jobs like that or we've lived in towns like that, where you have a guy like Sam who is stuck. And and because of that, he's become this sort of senior uh, employee. There's a sadness to that guy. Yeah. Not unlike the guys at the trash can, I imagine. Yeah. Where, where they, they seem to have... M- missed or or sort of overdreamed themselves into a paralysis where they're not gonna ever leave yeah or i also just feel like most jobs in this country Mm -hmm. suck Mm -hmm. like i don't know i feel like we forget when we like achieve our dreams and like get to interact with other people who like achieve their dreams that like most people don't 
get to have the job they'd really like to have. Mm -hmm. Like, no, most people, like, don't get their dream job. I mean, I'm saying really obvious shit, but I, it's that thing where I still think about that all the time. Or they the might time. not know what it is. Or they might not they, know what and it they're is. Just, they're just surviving because they don't know how to manifest you know, like you said, their creativity or because maybe their life has cornered them into a situation. Who knows why? Maybe, or just like class in this oh, sure. country. Absolutely, yeah. And I just like, uh, like the guy, like that guy in the play just like didn't get to go to college. And um, I don't know. I guess I do. I wanted to write about that too. Like and when you, when you write plays, like, like you, you recognize Shepard when I said it, like, at some point, whether you know why you got into it or not, you know, you had to reckon with what was going to become your life. You had to deal with theater. You had to educate yourself. Yeah. Although I was just going to say, although I'm not like I actually um, am not as well read in theater as I should be. Like, I love theater. I go see theater all the time. I love a lot of I like love certain playwrights and really studied them. But like I who? like um I mean, I like I got really into Chekhov for many years and like read everything he ever wrote. What um, was it about Chekhov that that compelled you um, specifically? Just how messy it was. How uh, I mean, just going back to vulnerability. How like scared and vulnerable everyone in his plays is, and how um, the conflict in the plays isn't like. Because when you take like a playwriting class in college, they tell you that like it's like a bad acting class. It's like, what do you want? You know, like this character wants this thing and like this character needs to want like something different. And then they like have to duke it out. And I always hated that kind of writing. And I feel like Chekhov plays really inspired me because they were like, that person doesn't know what they want. That person doesn't know what they want. They think they're projecting like this onto that other person. And now they're both feeling really lonely in the same room together. And that was really exciting to me. And like his plays always felt so much more entertaining to me than plays that had like a really action packed plot or mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. But that said, like I actually, I, I hate reading plays. I really, yeah. I love seeing plays. It's like my favorite thing to do, but I really hate reading them. And I'd much rather read a novel like any day of the week. Sure. So Shakespeare. I like, well, I like Shakespeare because I was a high school theater nerd. Yeah. So I kind of know a lot of Shakespeare because I was like in Hamlet when I was 15 and I like took a Shakespeare class and got really into it. So that was like, I think if you're a high school theater nerd, you get to know Shakespeare. Okay. But what did you glean from him? In the in, as a person who writes plays. Oh God! You know, I've never actually thought about like what what Shakespeare taught me. Um, what did you? It like feels about like a it? part of my. It's so funny. It like feels like a part of me because I was so young. You know, I was like in Merchant of Venice when I was like twelve. Uh huh. Um, I had my first kiss, like doing Merchant of Venice. Yeah. With this like cute older boy. Yeah. Um Did you feel it? Oh, I was so into it. And he was, I was like a really unattractive, like 12 year old. He was not into it. And I think he actually like asked the director to cut the, they ended up cutting the kiss from the show. Oh. But there was one glorious rehearsal when we got to kiss and I was super, super excited. Did it hurt your feelings when they cut the yeah, kiss? Yeah, yeah. Totally hurt my feeling. I was oh. like, is it, and then you just, I'm it's still, unforeseen like just, tragedy of just, Shakespeare for just you. telling you about it. I'm like, yeah. is it cause I was a bad kisser or is it cause you were 12 or is it cause he, they didn't want it in the play anymore. I don't know. Like, uh. anyway, um, 
Shakespeare. So it felt sort know. of ingrained. Yeah, to you? those plays just feel like part of the like culture in a weird way, and those stories. Yeah. Um, and the ma- I mean, the, what the cool thing about those plays is how little you need to do them. I feel like if you go to most plays in New York, oh, yeah. including mine, actually, you have these like incredibly expensive sets that are like trying to represent what a living room looks like or something. And it's really depressing and a lot of money is spent on it. And I think doing Shakespeare in high school, and I feel like a lot of high school kids have this, it's like a way to like get that all you need for theater is like a high school gymnasium. <laughs> and you you know what I mean? And like two props. Yeah. And you can like do a really good version of Hamlet. Like right. you do, And then, and um, each, every scene like takes place in a different place and people are like running around and there is, it's like super... They don't make very good movies. I mean, right. with some exceptions, but it's they're they're so theatrical. Um, but I'm I'm kind of pulling that out of my ass as so I, I talk to you. I didn't like that's not why I why not just any... why not just consider it thinking out loud. Yeah, and and trust it for a minute. All right, I'm not pressuring you. Yeah, no, it's just that thing where some, um, I'm sure you have this all the time. You like I listen, pull a lot of shit out of my ass. Yeah, and you listen to yourself or read yourself in print, I, and yeah. you're like, I just made that up to have something to say. Right, or, or you were just saying something bec- you hadn't thought about it before. But I think that what you're like, what you said, because I I have a hard time with Shakespeare, and I just you know I just had Ian McKellen give me a lesson in it face to face. Yeah, like he did Shakespeare for me, right, looking at me, and it was sort of mind blowing. Yeah, I, and I get that that I'm not going to get anything from reading it. Those days are sort of behind me. But if it's played with feeling and 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 focused, that the language connects on an emotional level even if i don't understand it yeah it kind of like zaps your brain that language in an amazing way i also think shakespeare should be performed in smaller spaces Mm -hmm. which i actually think is why a group of high school students doing shakespeare can be the best way to see it because um or sitting at a table Mm -hmm. with ian mccallan Mm -hmm. because i do feel like they do shakespeare in these like huge hoity-toity venues there's an and you're like watching, yeah, and there's a lot of pomp and circumstance around about it about honoring the Shakespearean method. Yeah, as and well. people have yeah. like weird pseudo British accents when yeah. they do it, even when they're American. And yeah. you know, there's like a lot of pretension around it. And I actually do think that like doing it in a small space without a lot of but you took to it. I did take to it. Yeah. So okay, so you did. You were into Chekhov when you got to college, and you put up a Chekhov play too, right? Yeah, I adapted Uncle Vanya a couple of years ago. Was that a great experience for you? It was a great experience. And we did it actually in a tiny, tiny space. So no one was farther away from the actors than like you and I are from each other. And it was in the round and everyone was sitting on the floor. Um, and I we just used all my favorite actors in New York. Who? Um, Let's give them a little love. Reed Burney, Mike Shannon... Georgia Engel, who was in John, yeah, who you her. saw last night. Um, Maria Dizia. There's nine people. Matt Mayer, who was in the flick. Yeah, he's great. Um, a lot of really great people. Um, it so was you've just got like, a crew. I got a crew, yeah. and I got my crew to do it, and they were amazing. And so what did you what did you want out of that? Um, I kind of want wanted exactly what I got, which was um, that was actually the most fun I've ever had watching. my own work because it wasn't really my work like it was an opportunity to write and change words around and be kind of a perfectionist um with a play I already knew was really good Mm -hmm. so that whole thing we were talking about of like feeling like a failure and feeling like you can't you didn't make the thing you want to make 
I just tried to do a really, really loyal translation of a play that I think is amazing and cast really good people in it and work with a really good director and really good designers. And it was super gratifying. Did Sam Gold direct it? it? Yeah, he directed it. Where'd you meet him? He did a great job. Um, I met him in 2006 just through mutual friends. Like his girlfriend, who's now his wife, was my friend and thought we'd work well together. And the guy I was dating at the time was his friend. And, you know, it was like that weird thing where people are like, you guys should meet and talk. Uh And then we did. So in starting to write plays, like how many are are not, are, are sort of just sitting on your computer still? Um, there's like three or four just sitting in my computer. Big plays or they? Big plays. One was an attempt to write like uh, the the my worst nightmare of a play, uh-huh. which was a like two person play about a romance, uh-huh. um, with a lot of nudity. Because mm-hmm. I always feel like people really exploit stage actors and right. make them take off their clothes all the time. Right. And I'm friends with a lot of actors, and it, it's just a really intense thing to ask someone to do. So I wrote this play that was like an almost nude, two hander play. Uh-huh. So I'll never show that to anybody. Okay. That was like a personal challenge. Uh-huh. I have some play I wrote that was kind of an attempt to write about me and my mother that didn't work out. Why? Those are the two that come to mind. Um, I wrote it. I haven't looked at it in years. I It just like um, just didn't find itself. It like didn't find a higher meaning. There Is wasn't like I, I didn't I never cracked the like thing above the family drama. And I think at some point I got nervous and tried to add a lot of like plot and action. I remember someone like running out of the room and getting a gun, mm-hmm. you know, um, it was really bad. And well, do you think that some of that like when you say you, you crack the, the wall or the ceiling of the, the drama, that's just something you feel. Yeah, that's like an intuitive thing. Well, it's that. um that's the gift right there. Well, that's the thing you're moving towards is that you could write about something very small, like someone sweeping up popcorn mm-hmm. or like a couple in a bed and breakfast, and that somehow if you do it the right way, it like achieves some larger spiritual meaning that you actually can't articulate or else it wouldn't have that resonant and meaning. And you can't really explain it. And you can't but- really explain it, and that's what makes it work. And then sometimes you just write a play and you're like, oh, this has no larger spiritual meaning. It's really just about these people Mm -hmm. saying the things they're saying and it's like not profound and I don't know why. And usually it comes from me trying to be, like it's that if you try too hard to be profound or if I have like too big or if I'm too sure of what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. I feel like that can actually like cripple the thing and make it then mean nothing. So you have to like hope that the transcendent thing happens. Like I imagine the thing about you and your mother is probably too personal for 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 you to find that thing maybe i have i really admire people who can like write straight autobiographical stuff from there i mean i'm sort of glad i can't do it because i feel like my family would be really mad at me yeah but um, i've done it they'll be mad at you but i've actually been lucky enough that like my plays really aren't based on specific people or things that have happened to me um and i actually i that's that's not really because I'm trying to protect anyone. It's actually just because I need a kind of distance from it. 
Like, I don't think I could ever write a character based on either of my parents entirely because... You'd be too self-censoring? Yeah, I'd be too... I'd, or even if I did just, like, let... I'd be too angry or it'd be the opposite. I'd either, like, be too easy on them or be too hard on them. I mean, I think that's how we feel about our parents. We, like, excuse weird behavior and then are weirdly hard on them for other behavior. And I feel like to write a character, I need to feel t- just 100% empathetic towards Mm -hmm. them but Mm -hmm. also have like a kind of cold critical distance and i just like don't know how i could ever write a play about either of my parents that had that kind of appropriate objective distance and and then you don't have the freedom to to build a relationship that's completely new with the character you're getting to know yeah and i feel like i'd have some weird agenda writing a play about someone i know like i'd be trying to prove some point yeah and you don't you, you don't feel like you have an agenda no, I definitely do not have an agenda. I mean, if, if I have an agenda, it's like I don't want to make plays like all the crappy plays that people who have seen. I mean, it's so crazy. Like I meet so many people who are like, yeah, I don't really like theater. Mm. And I guess my agenda is to like make plays that those people might like. Get them. Like, that was the conversation we had. I feel like I should at some point, but I don't want to lose this thread, you know, talk about the basic plots of the two plays because you know most people don't see plays and most people of, don't see plays or they see plays but like in their town they see like their town production of two or they go crime. to a big bra- or go to a big broadway thing. or then they go see wicked yeah the flick it takes place in a theater you know all in mostly during lights up when these ushers and the projectionists and that job kind of alters a bit uh you are cleaning up and the characters are um, Rose, Avery, and Sam. And I think I saw it right, the original cast, right? That yeah, was, yeah, those three, yeah. yeah. They're still doing it for a couple more weeks. Now, in, in building these characters, where did you know? Because there's something I, I did read in one of the earlier plays that, uh, that, that I didn't get to finish. But in the beginning of the play, you, you sort of created a glossary of absence. That there's- Oh, yeah. <laughs> That there was a glossary of of what the different silences were required that you asked them, whoever was producing yeah. the show, to utilize this key of of pause, silence, and there was a few. There was like yeah. four. Yeah, I don't do that anymore because so many people told me that I seemed like such an asshole. Like so many people were like, we bought your book of plays and you have this thing at the beginning where you tell people exactly how long to pause and... It seems really, but, but it is, and I also feel like people know my work well enough now that they sort of know not to speed right. through it. But right. sorry, I interrupted you. Where were no, you no, going? No. But, but see, to me, that's, that's sort of a, a type of awareness that, you know, you obviously see those periods of silence as being as important, if not more important than the actual um, dialogue. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Why? Well, I feel like a, the reason, well, it sort of goes back to the reason I hate reading plays is because I feel like 80% of theater is like the way it looks, mm-hmm. the physical objects on stage and like the bodies moving through space, like the way someone crosses their legs or gets up and walks across the room. And uh, that's like so much of the play to me. And I'm so much more, in, I think I am really interested in um, movement and silence, like movement happening during silence. Um 
And yeah, to me, that's just as important as the dialogue and the play. So so there are certain directors out there. This is like a big thing in British theater where they like cross out the stage directions. They like don't look at them. It's just the dialogue. Um, and that to me is crazy because I'm trying to orchestrate like a whole event um, where like the way you push up your glasses is as important as the thing you say. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's true in real life. And Whether um, we know it or not. Whether we know it or not. Right. And... Uh, so I try to be super specific about that in my stage directions and in the play. Um, well, I think it's it, it's really effective because what's interesting is I know that there was some controversy here in New York about uh, people not liking the flick. And, you know, previous to it winning any sort of awards yeah. that where it was put up originally, uh, there was some backlash from theater goers. And I was just in a room full of a lot of theater goers. Right. And these are not people that I would hang out with and many of them are much older than me yeah and and I know who they are and I you know I don't want to stereotype them but yeah. there is an expectation to what theater is and what it's become yeah it's, it's become this strange kind of almost um uh, how do I want to say it? This uh, cultural responsibility of a certain generation of people that's, totally. uh, that's a holdover from a different time. Yeah. And their expectations are, are outdated and, and sometimes specific. And it's not so much that they necessarily like mainstream things, but they have a definite idea of what theater should provide for them. Yeah, it should be like people talking really loudly and like debating issues in a really obvious clear way and the play should have a really clear message right, that you also, like take home with you but it, and also it, it that that experience of theater is sort of you know not unlike a movie in a certain way they want to be taken away for for a couple of hours with this spectacle yeah and and you actively fight that by by use of silences and also by use of breaking the fourth wall or suggesting that fourth wall is uh, you know a movie screen that there there's a there there is a an engagement that's required that is not specifically a spectacle. Yeah, well, it's like it's like I don't want it to necessarily be a spectacle, but I also want I want to figure out what is so special about theater because I actually think. Um, you know, there's all this worry in the theater community about like, is theater dead? You know, Always. people have been talking about this though yeah. for like 75 years. Right. But um, so I just think it's funny that people keep worrying that theater is dead and no one's going to go see theater anymore. But I feel like people react to that by trying to make stuff that's like more entertaining and like more fast moving and like more glitzy. Um, and for me, I feel like the thing theater does is you can like slow time down and we can all be in the room together. Right. I didn't, just to tell you, I did not feel that either play was long. Oh, that's great. At all. I don't know why. It must be why you're good. (laughs) Well, a lot of people like complain about how long they are, which is really interesting to me because there's movies that are longer. There's other plays that are longer. That's great. and, And I'm not like a theater going person. Yeah. But I did not, and I, you know, and I see a lot of live shit. I've been a comedian for a million yeah. years. I, I don't sit still well. I can't handle a concert, even if it's the fucking Rolling Stones for more than 45 minutes. I'm ready yeah. to go, I get antsy. Right. But I, I, I did not feel the time. And I don't know why, but it was good. But, and also like, I think what you're talking about is this insecurity in, in show business industry in general. To create a pace and, a, and, a, and an experience that, you know, they're over, always overcompensating out of complete insecurity of how to keep people engaged and whatever. Now, theater is yeah. a little different, 
but it's it. No, I think it's very similar in that way. And mm-hmm. this like thing where during previews before the plays open, when you can still make changes, you know, I have playwright friends where they'll be like, "Oh, people didn't laugh enough. I have to like change the thing, or someone walked out. I have to make the play shorter." Mm. Where and then I feel like that really fucks people up and makes bad theater. Well, it's not that's not supposed. You're not supposed to do a, a, a what do you call it a test group. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can have previews and stuff, and there's no. I don't think there's any rule in theater. Like, if you're a playwright and and something isn't effective, you you're a director and you talk about it or you decide to do something, but yeah. not to accommodate laughter necessarily. Yeah, although I think a lot of people work that way. Of I course. think that is there's there's just so much fear. I mean, there's fear in like any art form and any medium, especially li- anything live is like the scariest thing ever. Um, but I feel like theater people are like extra scared and extra worried, and it's like a weirdly conservative well, pa- medium. Well, well that's because they're pandering to a subscriber base that yeah. they're they're ninety. Yeah, yeah, and then but then it feeds itself because then when you pander to those people, then interesting young people don't come, and then it just gets worse and worse. No, absolutely, and 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 I think that the difference between you know what you know how what you do you know makes its way to Broadway. If it, if it ever needs to be there, like it seems like the theaters that I saw these plays in was was a great place to see them. And yeah. That, and once the expectations of ticket sales and and all that stuff comes in, even Barry Child can survive on Broadway when he did it. Yeah. And I kind of think it's just unconscionable. And this is not against anyone who has anything on Broadway, but I kind of think it's unconscionable to charge more than fifty dollars a ticket. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of unconscionable to charge fifty dollars a ticket. Mm-hmm. And any more than that is just crazy. It like just becomes some. I, I like don't understand what it is when you're paying like $150 to see a Broadway show. That's just like not a world I'm interested in at all. And also I think what you're interested in is, is really what theater is supposed to be is that it seems like your struggle with your characters and creating these plays is to, to sort of, you know, you may not know how it's going to happen, but to, to sort of elevate uh, the, the, you know, the richness of, 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 you know, what, what it's supposed to be to feel human. And to have your soul connected to something, if you believe in framing it that way. Yeah, and, and And, you know, finding it through the characters that you do. And I think that that is what, you know, why theater was vital to begin with, was to reconnect us with our humanity. Isn't that yeah. what the art? Right. Yeah. So it's sort of lost that focus. And it sounds to me like you want to return to that, you know, and bring in the generation of people that has no experience or desire or necessarily interest or, or, or information about what theater is. Yeah, and I think that's great. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I that's my idea. Once a woman came to see one of my plays who had l- never seen a play before, including like when she was a kid, mm-hmm. she just was like, "This is my first. This is the first time I've ever sat in an audience and watched actors on a stage." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "That's my ideal audience member. Like, mm-hmm. that's I want to make something that works for that person. Um, that's just super interesting to me. And like, how electrifying if 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 the play is good." that must feel to someone who's never seen that before. What's the biggest struggle that you have like in, in making a play whole? Like, like, when, because, you, like when I'm writing it or when I'm well, in like production? One thing I noticed last night was yeah. that the, a consistency of character uh, within a character, you know, both emotionally and psychologically. I, you know, I, I always find that fascinating because, you know, when you write television, a lot of times they're just writing joke to joke. Yeah. But, but you know what I mean? It really doesn't matter. You, you know what I mean? Once you get it, the character's broad. A lot of times. Yeah. But so when you have the time to do what you do in theater, that the idea that in, in say, John, that the Elias characters, uh, 
childhood, you know, kind of makes sense with who he is as an adult in terms of his emotional issues and psychological issues. Yeah. And there it's consistent. And 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 it, it it adds up as a human person. How how much of the work is about finding that consistency in, in having that character be psychologically and emotionally sound as the one you, you want to create? Um, Are you lo- conscious of it? A lot of it's unconscious. A lot of it is just like when I'm writing it, realizing that something I've written like somehow isn't true to that character and then having to That's cut intuitive? It. it really is. I do. I am really slow. And before I actually start writing the play, I take notes for years I say like I have like a hundred pages on my computer of notes about every single play I've ever written. And Mm -hmm. a lot of that is character. It's not character like, why does he do this? He does this because X, but it is just details like, oh, he, you know, went to this summer camp and this thing happened to him when he was a baby and he, it's his first memory and this and this and this and just, um, crazy, super, super specific details about their lives. And that sort of, once that document is really long, that's sort of, in a weird way, the template for the play. Like, then I sort of know everything about this person, and then I put them in a situation and see what they do. But it's there's very little planning about what's going to happen in the play, and very little planning about, like, are they going to behave this way because of that? Right. There's very little... I think my plays are very psych- psychological, but I try not to be overly psychological while writing them. Right. Um... Just because I feel like in real life we do stuff that's like everything's psychological, everything's related to our childhood, but in a very like sneaky, weird, crazy way that we can never really put our finger on. Right. Um, and when we think we're like getting to the root of it, we're like farther away than we ever were. Yeah, if you right, because if you get something intellectually, it doesn't mean that it's connected or you can do anything about it. Well, that was my fear of therapy for so many (laughs) years was just that like by talking about my childhood and being like, yeah, that's why I couldn't commit to that thing or Mm -hmm. something that uh, that actually I would be farther away from the answer and farther away from self-knowledge than ever before. Just because like the second you pin something down like that, it's probably wrong. Or, or it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to ac- access your vulnerability in the future to write that course. Yeah. And I just believe like the self is such a slippery, yeah. ever-changing, like uh-huh. viscous, yeah. weird, unknowable thing. Uh-huh. And um, I think it's really dangerous to just be like, this is who I am. And so well, I some do. Some people do that as, out of fear. Yeah. Yeah. And just like needing a sense of direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when I'm writing the play... I feel like it's going well when the character like does something that I didn't know they'd do or that I would have never have predicted they'd do or they say something totally out of character. And then I think in the end that can feel more like a real person because we do that all the time. So so, th- so you let them do that on the page and it's that, yeah. that excitement of discovery yeah. that comes from writing. Yeah, that's the best. Like yeah. that's when I know it's going well is when I do feel like they're um, they're like these crazy figments of my imagination that have taken on a life of... Uh huh. Their own. Well, it's. Uh, and let me set up the other play that I saw, which was John. This takes place at a bed and breakfast in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. A couple comes and uh, they deal with it because there's so many comedic elements at work all the time in both of your plays. That are that are. It's a rare type of comedy. It's very hard to do, and it's not. And it, it takes a, a, a weird confidence and commitment that you don't really see because. You know, the emotional depth of of what you do as a playwright 
it, it sort of relies on on I think you could traditionally call it the slow burn. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're master of the slow burn, and and you know, and that's an amazing. It's not. I don't think you incorporated it as a device or you're conscious of it, but because things get sparse, you know, dialogue wise, when you do hit the closure. You know whether it's funny or it's painful or it's, it's, it, there. There is this the 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 punchline is built up through such a a, a deliberate and, and and I don't want to use the word plotting, but a spacious kind of setup for a beat, right? And and in both shows, uh, in in a couple of areas, you know that payoff blows the whole fucking thing open and makes the experience that you've just had all the more relevant. It happens with Sam, you know, a couple of times in the flick right. where just something comes out of him where you're like, what is that? Right. That That's what he's been holding in or that's what's really going on in that guy. And I, I, I guess I'm just praising you, but, but in the, <laughs> no, it's really nice. <laughs> but uh, in, in John, it's, it's a much more complicated um, psychologically and and I think um, more complicated emotionally, and there there are themes that are, are I'm not going to say more sophisticated, but your imagination has gone to a different place with that. Yeah. And the women characters, like there's this weird undercurrent through the whole thing. It just takes place in in this bed and breakfast, and there's a young couple who's you know sort of in the last legs or trying to salvage their relationship and. He's a, a childhood Civil War geek, and she's along for the ride. And they go to this woman's bed and breakfast, and it's classically, you know, the intrusive sort of weird, boundaryless bed and breakfast owner. Yeah. And then she has a friend who's this, uh, you know, slightly, you know, very intense, angry, blind woman who yep. has her own story. It's weird with plays. I'm like, no spoilers, but yeah, I can't really describe it. That's what's happening. Well, and I think that the second you really spend your, this is something I spent years doing, like. If you spend your time trying to figure out what other people are thinking, mm -hmm. you will go crazy. Mm -hmm. Like there is a kind of madness. And we were all doing it all the time. And that's why we're all kind of crazy. But like if you really go full throttle, like I'm going to spend all my time trying to figure out what the person I'm in a relationship is and is in with this thinking or I'm going to try to figure out what that person like you do there's like a real madness in that no it's horrible um, it's because you're usually wrong yeah you're there's no way to be right and, and then occasionally we like our, our intuitions are completely correct but but we don't know what people are thinking we might have like thoughts about what they're doing but that was something I wanted to that was like a form of madness that I wanted to tackle with like a character who actually was um, who had at one point in her life gone clinically insane because like i fucking get hung up on you know the poetry of what makes you know theater and specifically what you're doing and, and specifically in that play compelling is that you loaded that one up you know the the flick was you know pretty sparse yeah and and you know what you you were really relying on revelations of the characters to sort of drive the emotions of that thing yeah with john you know you're setting it you know, at the you know the site of a massacre, yeah, a civil war massacre. You you have this environment in this bed and breakfast that suggests an almost mythological universe. Definitely, and I want I'd never done that before. That was like a weird challenge to myself. Um, 
because I have always written very like sparse plays with very realistic settings, mm-hmm. um, very neutral spaces. Yeah. yeah. And I I did, and I also have written plays much more about men than women. Um, you know, I, I wrote a play once that was like an all male cast, which was the aliens. And I feel like the flick is actually really about the guys. And I love writing for men, actually. It's really fun. Um, but I was like, why am I not writing for more women? It was sort of a question I was asking myself. And I was getting really interested in um, just sort of, uh, I was like a really weird, sort of supernaturally obsessed kid. Like, I really did feel like all my stuffed animals were alive and watching me, and that crazy stuff was happening that I didn't understand, and that. My parents were atheists, but I was like, there's definitely someone up there controlling this. You know, I was just very, my mother always was like, you would be a religious fanatic if Mm -hmm. we'd let you, Mm -hmm. you know, like I built weird little shrines in my room and I've just, and I, I started with this play. I really wanted to go back and investigate that. Um, cause it's very like uncool. Like I felt like I was before I was sort of like writing a play that, that, um, with these sort of like cool dingy sets about like. I, I don't know that there's a kind of like dry kind of like witty coolness to what I was doing. A and, detachment. Yeah. And a kind of detachment. And I was like, I want to play where like a woman's getting her period the whole time. Yeah. And people are talking about going crazy and there's like dolls everywhere. And they're like, that lady might be an angel. And uh, people like talk about God because I don't feel like people, I don't know. I do feel, and maybe I'm crazy, but I do feel like we're all wandering around, like wondering about God or if we don't call it God, like mm-hmm. the divine or mm-hmm. fate all the time. And no one's talking about it. We don't know how to talk to each other about it. Like we don't know how to have those kinds of conversations. And so I did, I was like, I'm just going to write something that's like over the top, like femi, over the top, like just people like talking about God the whole time. There's going to be magic, but maybe like it's not real magic. Like who the fuck knows? Because I kind of feel like that's what life feels like to me anyway. Um, and the and one I, dude I, in there is going to be this sort of like emotionally stifled. Well, it's funny. That dude the, is like if anyone in that play is me, it's that dude. Yeah. Like it's so funny. So much of me is in that yeah, guy and yeah. so much of my history and my right. life is in that guy. So it's always so. So I was like, I want to write a play that's like dealing with like feminine archetypes uh-huh. but like i'm the dude like i'm i i'm gonna make myself the dude yeah um but yeah i also like got really into reading all these psychologists at the turn of the century who wrote about religion uh-huh. um and uh, i read this one thing one of the things that inspired the play was this um thing i read that like dread is the first step in religious development I'm there. Yeah. I'm on the precipice. That's right. That's and I was like, "Oh my god, cuz as a and cuz as a kid cuz I wasn't religious and my parents weren't religious, I was like always scared and always creeped out. Like I always felt like there were ghosts and witches and like think uh, something like a hand was about to come out of the ground and grab me, and I never knew why. And I, I like until very recently I was very confused about why I was such like a scared sort of um superstitious kid, and I feel like in a way it was my in like a very secular household, it was my way of trying to access the divine, mm-hmm. like something bigger than myself. But sure. I feel like when you're a kid with atheist parents, like the way you do that is almost like through the spooky, that's like true. through it's horror, yeah. through demons, through horror movies, through scary movies. And that's your way of feeling like, oh man, maybe there's something bigger than me. 
that I that we can't totally figure out. Right. And mysterious and 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 unknowable. Yeah. The mysterious unknowable. Yeah. The, the sad thing about dread being the sort of precipice of spiritual awakening. It's also the precipice of a lifelong anxiety problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Now, how aware of you are of of getting the laugh in comedy? I mean, is, do you know you're writing comedy? No, that's the thing. Like every time, I like I now after every play goes up, I realize it's funny. But I, I think it's funny because I, I'm because I'm really bad at being intentionally funny. It's just like beyond me. Like I could never write for a really? sitcom. Really, like I could never write for. A, I think I'm funny, but I have to be totally relaxed and totally serious actually like writing a play to be funny yeah i have to be alone and not trying to be funny and not thinking about anybody else and then but i every time i like with john i was like this is my not funny play and and then it's like getting all these like yucks in the when it goes up it's it's weird and then the laughter always surprises me but for um, the flick you knew was funny where it was funny no i really i write then, it then who then what is your relationship with sam gold then somebody is well, I always give him the play and I'm always like, this isn't funny. This is my not funny play. And then he's always like, you're wrong. It's going to be funny. And then it is funny. I mean, it's it's. I think it's not funny when I'm writing it. But then when we're rehearsing it, I am like hyper specific it, about timing. Like I drive everybody crazy. Like I'm like, if it's not funny, if you like. You know when it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. And I have my very specific sense of humor too. Like there's a kind of laugh that I hate. Like I don't just want laughs. And actually, you don't want um, punchline laughs. You don't want turn of phrase laughs. I don't want punchline laughs, and I don't want like um, that's clever. Yeah, I right. don't want that's clever laughs. <laughs> I want it to be about like I want. It, I want every laugh to come from a place of like humiliation and recognition. Sure, the, the laughter, like I say this on stage sometimes. I said, "There's no laughter like the laughter that should be crying." Yes, and my favorite kind of laughter is like to like. Sometimes when the whole audience laughs raucously, yeah, I'm like, like I no, fucked I fucked up because like I everyone thinks they're supposed to laugh right, right now. Right. But my favorite is when like one lady in Can't the fifth row yeah. just like barks yeah, with yeah, laughter yeah, and everyone yeah. else is like, what is she laughing? Like I uh, like when it's like when I feel like it's individual people uh, having individual experiences. Uh, I don't really like the like 300 person crowd believe laugh. Believe me, I'm right there with you. I, I, I've designed my stand up so it's only for a few people. <laughs> That's the way I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, this is what makes what makes it great and why when people miss it because they're too worried about their watches is that you have uh, a very specific style and timing. Yeah. And well, you know how to honor it. Oh, I know. I do feel like I know exactly, for good or bad, whether you like it or not, I feel like I know exactly how it should be. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I, the thing I want it to be is totally like unexplainable. Mm -hmm. Like I want it. And I think one of the reasons I, you know, I don't, I'm not that crazy about the flick anymore. I mean, I'm not that crazy about any play I've yeah, okay. written like yeah. three years later. Yeah. And I'm not bashing on it, right. but I think it like ties. It's like, I started realizing my plays were a little too neat and I felt like they were kind of like tying themselves up yeah. in a little bow at the end. Yeah. And with this new one, I really was like, I want it to be a mess. Right. Like I'm going to be intentionally make this play like kind of in the end make no sense and make total sense at the same like I feel like half the people in the audience will be like that added up to nothing and half the people will be like that made total sense that was completely cohesive but I I really want to stop trying to explain anything to anybody well that's good well that just means that for you know for the fight you're fighting for theater and for yourself is to continue growing as an artist so that's good hopefully 
So are you finding that that the people you want to come to the shows are coming? No, not always, to be honest. I, uh, I feel more and more like I have an audience and like people, some people know my work and come see it, but I still feel like there's a lot of like rich old people mm. who come see it and then hate it. Like it's that weird thing where they buy all the tickets and then they fucking hate it and walk out halfway well, I think, through. Um, I th- well, that's so funny because like, I think it's necessary what you're doing to keep fighting this fight. And it's it's great that you're getting the attention and the uh, awards and whatever because that will enable you to do that. I you hope will so. You will have to be reckoned with by those people. And if they don't want you, then fuck them. Then maybe the other people will come in. Yeah. But the fact that theater owners and the theater industry is, is you know, uh, trying to accommodate them by apologizing for you is, is fucking heinous, and that's not what art is about. So I think that I think the Pulitzer is going to buy you a few more plays. That's good. And and you know the theater I'm working at where you saw John has this cool initiative where they only charge twenty five dollars per ticket, which just makes me feel better about doing theater in general. Like I always felt weird doing a play somewhere where they charge like seventy dollars. I was like, how am I? How are you going to get young high school students to come see this? Mm-hmm. And Signature, my next. Two plays are going to be there, and all the tickets are $25. Oh, great. And that's just like a game changer. Right. That's great. So you cut yeah. that deal, and it's just a matter of getting the word out. Yeah. yeah. Okay, now let's come back to Scott Rudin and, and, and Faustian deals. Now, do you want to write movies? So I've written movies. That's how I've like gotten my health insurance since 2008. I was okay. just like a hired, they'd be like, we need rom-com about this you know you're a girl right no no you're a girl write a rom-com you know and so this is how they ruin playwrights yes this is how they ruin playwrights and then i actually had a total breakdown a few Mm. years ago and i was like i can't do this anymore like it's paying my bills but i'm so unhappy and i'm doing a terrible job like i'm not actually good at right writing bad movies and um, I actually had a conversation. So you were doing rewrites? I was um, I was actually doing like someone would have, an, you know, that thing where they're like, we need someone to write a movie. Based on this property we have? For or this they, property, yeah. yeah. We like bought this right. foreign movie and we need you to do it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then I had a whole thing where I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, I quit. Like, I'm just going to leave the industry. And this is why Scott Rudin is amazing. I had a meeting with him and he was like, why don't you want to write movies anymore? Mm-hmm. And I was like, because I'm done. Cause I write shit, they hate it. I then I get fired off the job. Like I'm miserable. I have to find another way to do this. And he was like, "Well, if you could do anything in the movies, what would you do?" And I was like, "Well, I'd write and direct my like own weird movie where I had total control, mm-hmm. and I didn't have to like outline it beforehand for a bunch of dippy people." Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Great, why don't you do that for me?" <laughs> And I was like, what? Well, I'm just, you know, and then it is my like self. I was like, but I'm just like this young woman. Like who Uh would hire me to do, you Uh know? And he was like, well, you should have told me. Like, I didn't know you were interested in directing. Great. Like, I'll pay you to write a script and you can be attached as director. Write whatever you want. You don't have to tell me what it is. Like, just go do it. Uh Shut up, Uh you know? Are you doing it? Yeah. Good. How's it coming? That's why he's cool. I mean, what I've written so far, I hate. But I'm going to try to get there. Like, I really, really do want to. I am um, knowing I can direct it is like a game changer because I am so hyper specific about everything that screenwriting isn't a good profession for me unless I'm directing it. Well, this sounds exciting. So he's a he's it's great. He's got my loyalty for that one. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, Congratulations on everything. Thank you. It's nice talking. Congratulations to you. To you. Oh, that's very sweet of you. Thank you. Um, Are we good now? Yeah, we're good. 
That's it. That's our show. What an amazing talk I had with her. I love her. I love her work. You should go see her plays if you can. You should see more theater in general. I should see more theater in general. Oh, you hear that familiar buzz? I had to warm up the dirty old man to do my ending licks. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Get on the mailing list. Check the calendar. Check uh, the uh, episode guides. Get hooked up with Howl.fm. Over there, get the Howl app so you can get that WTF archive. Straight telly into the dirty old man.